So I'm glad you're here. This is supposed to be part two, but actually it's just part one and two. Uh, because last time we had technological glitches and it cut off some of the things I had to say. I was trying to be too ambitious with videos, uh, images, PowerPoints, and all this. So I've just foregone that, forewent that. And uh, so I'm just going to begin. Okay. <clears throat> so this is called The Birds and the Bees, Take Two. And I'm really looking at the biblical view of sexuality. Now, if you've heard, I want you to understand that this talk is supposed to be in light of shame and sexuality. I gave a talk on sexuality and shame, not shame and sexuality, Liz. Um, now, in that talk, I looked at various forms uh, that arise around sexuality, that forms of shame, and how the Bible points us toward a redemptive view, and the church plays a role in that shame, society plays a role in that shame, and there needs to be a compassion that we have uh, uh, around this issue. It affects us differently, each of us differently. I uh, hope that we may be able to love as Jesus loved. He loved the marginalized and the displaced, and I hope that that uh, takes place in our discussion time, and I will try to do my best in uh, doing that as well. But I do touch a lot of contentious issues. Now, sexuality and shame dealt with a lot of personal issues, personal struggles. Now, personal struggles may arise as a part of um, as a as a part of <clears throat> this discussion, but my focus is really around the socio-political dimensions of sexuality, around sexuality. Uh, and last time I looked around contemporary views, I'm gonna review that for those who weren't here. Uh, I know that there's people on here that didn't get to hear that as well. Uh, and I will do that succinctly as possible. And then I'll turn to the biblical view. And really what we're going to see is the contrast between the contemporary view around sexuality and its implications and the biblical view around sexuality and its implications. And I'm wanting to show how the biblical view of sexuality is positive and persuasive. That's my hope. And, uh, and if, you don't, if you don't believe it, that's fine. At least I want you to reject something that is what the Bible actually says rather than a repressed sexuality that it does not talk about. Um, anyway, we'll see. But I want to begin with an example uh, to start us out <clears throat> around a current argument that's been happening. Uh, I think they call it a Twitter storm. Uh, it's an argument between the trans community and uh, the feminist community. Uh, particularly around uh, feminists that consider themselves gender critical uh, or derogatorily called TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists, TERFs. So if you hear someone calling you a TERF, that is a bad sign. Okay. Um, because it means that you affirm women in such a way that excludes trans women, supposedly. So J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter City um, series, one of the most wealthiest women in the world, uh, made comments on Twitter that were considered transphobic. Uh, she says that she's a trans ally. 
um, but people uh, have actually started to burn her books as a result of her comments. And they said that uh, we should have known all along that she was transphobic. She's just a product of British culture. Well, how did she get into these deep waters? Well, she criticized an article. She reposted an article and criticized the title. And it was talking about COVID-19 implications on equality for those who menstruate. And so she commented on Twitter in light of posting this article, people who menstruate. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Woman, wimpened, woomood. You can see that she's trying to get at the word woman, right? So this began a series of attacks and counterattacks between transgender activists and gender critical feminists. Rowling also said in the midst of this debate, uh, when she said that biological sex, uh, that when someone said biological sex isn't real, she responded, if sex isn't real, then there's no same-sex attraction. If sex, sex isn't real, I'm having a hard time saying the word sex. Oh. <laughs> um, if sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and I love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. The idea that women like me, who've been empathetic to trans people for decades, feeling kinship because they're vulnerable in the same ways as women, that is to male violence, hate, quote unquote, hate trans people because they think sex is real and has lived consequences is a nonsense. Um, and so that just sets up this debate that's happening between, you know, radical feminists or just feminists and the trans community. Is biological sex real or not? Where does the sense of gender come from? By self-identification or by natal sex? Is sex biological or is it assigned at birth? Is transgenderism a result of biological or neurobiological factors, like having a male brain and a female body? Or is it a result of psychosocial and environmental factors, uh, for example, the oversexualization of the female body or sexual trauma? How are we to resolve this issue between identity and biology anyway? So this is not a talk about transgenderism, uh, though I mention it at several points. Um, if you want an excellent talk on transgenderism, I think Jim Paul gives a very compassionate and very balanced uh, uh, lecture called Transgenderism. You can find it on the English Labrie podcast. I highly recommend it. Um, but rather, I'm giving this example as a sample of where the debate is currently around sexuality. What it reveals is the battle between the mind and the body, or more precisely, between freedom and nature. I very clunkily said ego-paganism last week or two weeks ago. Forget that term. Forget that you ever had it. Scrub it from your mind. Uh, just think freedom and nature now. Okay. Which speaks most truly about what it means to be human? Our determined genetic makeup? or our self-awareness? Does one have primacy over the other in these arguments, particularly in the areas of sexuality and gender? 
So in this talk, I want to explain the biblical view of what it means to be human, particularly in the area of sexuality and gender, and also its social implications. Before I do that, I'd like to review some comments I made in the uh, previous talk. Uh, for that reason, um, I mean, uh, it failed to record. And so for that reason, I wanted to kind of go over that and some people who haven't been at that first talk, um, I will review, I will try to briefly review, briefly is an elastic term, I will mm -hmm. briefly review that argument uh, around the contemporary views, particularly freedom over nature. And then it'll give me a chance to clarify what I want to say about the Bible. Um, but even before then, right now, I need to make some comments about this tension between nature and freedom. Because this is where society is at today, contemporary freedom. So I'm going to talk about the contemporary worldview of freedom over nature, what implications that has for sexuality today. Then I'm going to look at the biblical worldview um, and then uh, and its implications, social implications before I conclude. So the beginning of this tension did not start with transgender uh, ideology battling J.K. Rowling. It didn't start with gay marriage. It didn't start with the sexual revolution. It didn't even start with birth control. Uh, one may point to many beginnings, but the one of the most decisive ones was when God was removed from the scientific worldview, uh, which was in the 1500s. Science was being done uh, before the 1500s with the assumption that God exists. And that shaped how they understood science. But after the 1500s, God was removed. And so science was then being done within a closed system. We may call this naturalistic science. Within this naturalistic explanation, it wasn't just God that disappeared. It was, uh, there was other unfortunate byproducts of this naturalistic science. Uh, so did such things as morals, love, significance, and freedom. Sam Harris is a current proponent that freedom is an illusion, for example. It's just illusion of the mind, which is biologically and chemically programmed by evolution, evolutionary processes. Yet this created and still creates a dilemma for us, for the human person. So what does it mean to be aware of one's self? What does it mean to be a self at all? Where does that sense of self come from? So as a result, people revolted at the idea that they were completely determined by naturalistic uh, causes. It went against experience and thus began the battle between freedom and nature. Francis Schaeffer wrote about this in the late 60s in a book called Escape from Reason. Speaking, uh, and in this book, he's speaking about the moment in the, roman the romantic turn this turn of when they turned away from uh, naturalistic determinism toward wanting to be expressive. This is what he says. Naturalistic science has become a very heavy weight, an enemy. Freedom is beginning to be lost. So people who are not really modern as yet, as we are, and so have not accepted that the fact that they're only machines begin to hate science. They long for freedom, even if the freedom makes no sense. And thus, autonomous freedom and the autonomous machine face, stand facing each other, freedom, nature. What is autonomous freedom? Francis Schaeffer continues. It means a freedom 
in which the individual is the center of the universe. Autonomous freedom is a freedom that is without restraint. Therefore, as a person begins to feel the weight of the machine pressing upon them, Rousseau and others swear and curse, as it were, against the science which is threatening their human freedom. The freedom that they advocate is autonomous in that it has nothing to restrain it. It is freedom without limitations. It is freedom that no longer fits into the rational world. It merely hopes and tries to will that the finite individual person will be free, and all that is left is individual self-expression. So he wrote in the 60s, long before personal expression and gender expression became a thing. So it's been a battle between freedom and nature ever since. Uh, consider this tension being expressed in the 2008 uh, issue of Time Magazine, The Science of Romance. I brought this up in the last lecture. Throughout the magazine, we read articles on how science explains why we do what we do, why we flirt, why we're attracted to certain people, certain shapes, why we become ro romantically, romantically committed, and so on. Yet despite the scientific findings to explain why we do what we do, um, uh, there is no moral implications on these scientific findings. Even when such effects scientifically found are negative, such as the, as the pill, um, the negative effects of the pill, or the positive benefits of monogamy, there are no moral imperatives made from what science tells us. Science informs, but we choose. So what remains between freedom and nature? However, this tension can't remain static. One has to give way to the other. Is it nature or is it freedom? Because there's constant battle. It's a power battle between the two. They can't just sit side by side, as you see with transgender activists and J.K. Rowling. What we see in the Time magazine is that despite what science says of our predetermined drives, we can choose. What we see is that the battle is being won by freedom. Freedom over nature. So freedom has nature pinned down to the map, okay? What we, see, um, what we see is also it's spilling over into public dialogue, this victory of freedom over nature in terms of sexuality. So Haley Steinfeld, I mentioned, uh, she sings a song called Love Myself. Um, it's a song about masturbation, but it's perceived as a song about female empowerment. So how can masturbation be empowerment as opposed just to pleasurable? Or consider how one sees their sexual or gender expression as their identity. This can only make sense if freedom is over and against nature. This worldview has led to three negative consequences as which I brought up. The technological control over the sexual body the state control over the biological family, and the social control over individuals. Uh, I want to go through these three consequences fairly quickly. Uh, the, first, the technological control over the sexual body. So freedom over nature has produced a different view of what it means to be sexual and what it means to be a family. First, I pointed to birth control. This severs the childbearing aspect from the sexual act which enables the sexual act to be more about 
expression than it is about children. So does abortion, which subsumes the life of what is conceived in the woman um, toward, uh, in favor of the woman's expressed will over her own body. One may also look to transgenderism, when a person seeks to realize their perceived gender through puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and top and bottom surgeries. So you see technological control over the sexual body. That's what I'm talking about. Then there's also IVF, in vitro fertilization. Now IVF may be used to help uh, a couple conceive a child, uh, but the point I made is that what IVF has enabled is the expansion of what family means. It's enabled people to family differently. Uh, technological control over reproduction has enabled single women, friends, platonic co-parenting. You can find omodamily.com. So two strangers uh, meeting up on websites to um, have each other um, to help have each other's baby. Um, they can do it through uh, intercourse, but most don't uh, because it's not about attraction. It's just about co-parenting. Uh, IVF has enabled this. Uh, gay couples and polyamorous arrangements all can be constructed as families. In all these, we see how the technological control over the sexual body becomes control over natural sexual processes, such as gender, children, and family life. Two, the second consequence is the state control over the biological family. So this technological control within this worldview of freedom over nature brought about an inevitable change to the law, which needed to adjust these changing mores. This has brought a dissolution to the natural family and increased the power of the state over that family. How does that work? In marriage, uh, we can just a little history line of how that worked from technological, I mean, um, uh, that line of how the state gained control over the biological family. Uh, in marriage, one can perhaps point first to no-fault divorce laws, uh, which revealed the movement of seeing marriage not as a biological reality, but as a romantic commitment. Uh, people didn't need to prove that a spouse was unfaithful in order to get a divorce. So it eased this for many people. Then, with the notion of marriage as primarily understood as a romantic commitment, not a biological one, we understandably saw the introduction of gay marriage. Why would you keep two people who love each other out when other two people can be romantically committed to each other? So gay marriage, uh, however, created a redefinition, not just of marriage, but also of the child-parent relationship within the law, within the charter. Marriage is no longer a naturally arising reality between a male and a female that the state protects. Rather, marriage has become a construct of the law. It's a creation of the law. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But after the state redefined what marriage was, they needed to redefine what family was. It's a natural progression. The language in the Charter Rights of Canada redefined the parent from blood relationship to legal relationship. It wasn't just a case-by-case -case study of adoption. When it was within the Charter Rights that they moved from blood relationship to legal relationship. And this is where the law asserts its wedge. The state asserts its power between the parent and the child. The bond is no longer biological, but legal. 
Who keeps the parents together? What's the power between the parent and the child? The law, the state. So what follows is that the state then becomes responsible to re-educate how society should see marriage and family. It's no longer a natural institution. So a child might say, oh, you know, uh, uh, a mommy and a daddy or something like that, they, they see as a biological reality. But they're re-educated uh, not to see it as a natural institution, but a, a legal institution. So the law has a, or the state has a responsibility to educate people on how, and educate children how to see society as it has been shaped. The state then also has the position to educate school children on understanding sexuality in this framework. So we see the introduction of SOGI 123. Uh, SOGI is sexual orientation, gender identity. It's a, a curriculum to help uh, uh, school children understand sexual orientations and gender orientations. Um, and you have something like the gender unicorn, which teaches that sex is not biological, but a sign that uh, sex is between the legs, gender is between the ears. Uh, and so this, you can see where uh, uh, freedom is over nature. Another result is the criminalization, as with the criminal code with conversion therapy. I certainly believe that the law should, and Christians should protect, um, uh, create protections for gay and trans people the problem I have with this code is the vagueness of the concept and that the exceptions, that is that the religious institutions um, who are supposedly protected um, by this criminal code is not written in the code itself, but are only included as an explanatory note. This is what the lawyers presented to the courts and said that we want this explanatory note that religious institutions so the criminal code under conversion therapy, conversion therapy has many horrific things about it, but, uh, but the vagueness sets it up where um, it is possible to interpret that if someone, let's say, um, uh, wants to have advice on, on if they should transition their gender, and they come and they want to seek my advice, and I would not be able to encourage them to remain uh, the sex assigned at birth, but, uh, but I should be more careful to encourage them otherwise. And so the criminalization of how I should speak about that and what I should do, um, there is leeway in the, how the code is understood right now, but it can change because the explanatory note is not written in the code that religious institutions should be able to be free um, to do these things. But it is complicated. I'm not saying that the that there shouldn't be some protections um, in this. But my problem is the non-committal vagueness that puts institutions at risk for those who ask for help. We've also seen the courts ruling in favor of minors seeking gender transition over and against their parents' wishes. A recent case has become well-known locally in BC when a father who is trans-affirming felt concerned about the irreversible effects of the medicine and about the possible unawareness that the impact would have on his 14-year-old child. He wanted the child to put off gender transition until they were 18. Um, and it was his daughter who wanted to transition to male, so FTM, female to male. Uh, and he said, 
I, I just want the child to wait until they're 18 before they went through these irreversible effects. So in the National Post, uh, in an article, uh, they use not their real names, and I'm a little upset that they give uh, the father's name Clark. I'm a little bit upset. I almost want to change it, but I'll get confused as I read it. Um, but this is, uh, I want you to hear this back and forth of how the courts and the hospitals ruled in relation to the father and how the father understood this thing. So it's about a 14-year-old who wanted gender transition from uh, a female to male. The 14-year-old the identifies as male and goes by the name, well, in this article, Max. Uh, but that is not their real name. Anyway, so the father, Clark, did not sign the form to give consent. He felt the potential medical ramifications were too serious for someone Max's age to take on. You don't just jump them in, you just don't jump them into things that can't change back. When she's 18 and she does it, I'll support her 100%. During his conversations with the Post, Clark referred to Max as his daughter and used female pronouns. Clark says a hospital social worker tried to persuade him to come in to talk, but he declined. All the information he needed was on that form. He also sent hospital staff a copy of his separation agreement from his wife, which includes a stipulation that he and Sarah, his wife, ex-wife, get to jointly exercise, quote unquote, all parental responsibilities, including giving, refusing, or withdrawing consent to medical, dental, or other health-related treatments for the child. Last month, however, Clark received a letter from the hospital. It stated that under the BC Infants Act, as long as healthcare provider is satisfied, um, a child understands the nature, consequences, benefits, and risks of the proposed treatment, and concludes that the treatment is in the child's best interests, interests the right to consent belongs to the child alone. In quotes. This is what the letter, um, the consent belonged to the child alone, and the courts ruled in favor of the child against his father, even though she's a minor. What we see is that personal freedom, even if it's of a minor, has overruled any parental consent. What has become more concerning is that those who have experienced gender dysphoria, particularly young girls, has dramatically increased. At Tavistock Clinic, a gender identity clinic in the UK, saw a 4,400% uptick within the past decade of people who are wanting gender reassignment. Many on the board of Tavistock Clinic resigned because they claimed that the clinic was unethically fast-tracking transition for children without addressing other possible comorbidities. Uh, one therapist uh, said that, um, uh, that the narrative is that if, if, if the clinic doesn't hurry, then that person will die by suicide. And he said, as a therapist for 20 years dealing with people with gender dysphoria, that is a very, very rare case. And he says, but it's in the narrative so that it's fast-tracked. And so he stepped down and resigned because he could not ethically continue on with what the clinic was doing. And he was vilified for this opinion. So the attempt to study ROGD uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria 
has become stigmatized as transphobic. For example, James Caspian, as reported in Time magazine in 2017, was a therapist who wanted to pursue a master's in the topic of lesbian detransitioners. So this is a, a woman who has transitioned to male and had transitioned back. So they call them detransitioners. And, uh, and the idea is that the reason they transitioned is because of same-sex attraction, but then realized uh, th that's why they, want, they thought maybe we, they should be male. But then they realized, no, I'm just gay, and then moved back. And so they wanted to say, well, how often is this happening? And, uh, and wanted to study that. And what are the results of this? And why did they think that transition was the right choice rather than identifying as gay? Um, well, the university, I think it's the University of Bath in England, um, denied his request to study this master's because it was unethical. Many of the gender specialists interviewed in the same article felt, um, who felt that there were social and environmental factors, such as same-sex attraction, trauma, or hypersexualization of women, that could explain the sharp rise of gender dysphoria, said that they did not want their names published in fear of backlash, the fear of losing their job. This causes me, uh, this uh, uh, has me go to my third one. So the first one is technological control over the sexual body. The second is the, uh, so, uh, the legal or state control over the natural body or the uh, biological family. And then the third one is social control over individuals. So all this is basically looking at nature over freedom and what are the implications, what are the fruit of these ideas around sexuality? Freedom over nature. Sorry, thank you. Uh, these redefinitions did not remain hidden in the law as accommodations to a minority who needed protection, but has created avenues to assert this worldview into the public through commercialization, early education, and social media. This has placed pressure on society, particularly young people, to conform to certain patterns of thinking and being and looking. One can simply walk through a grocery lineup and see the emphasis placed on orgasm and sexual images, uh, usually of hypersexualized women on these magazine covers. It's shaping my son and my daughter, um, who are eight and 10. And um, you also have, uh, sorry, I got lost here. You see it on magazine covers. Uh, and these ideas on the magazine covers often tie orgasm uh, not just to sexual expression, but to fulfillment and to uh, personal expression. This is teaching our children through social and public discourse. Elementary children are encouraged to identify their sexual and gender orientations to know who they truly are from the earliest of ages. Um, and interestingly, these are often defined by gender stereotypes. What, what toys do they like to play with? Um, there are the cases where a child from a very young age will have true gender dysphoria. I'm not discounting gender dysphoria, just so that you can hear me. Um, I've met someone who had true gender dysphoria. But, uh, but these are questions of, couldn't this tip the scale to people start questioning before maybe they're ready, before their prefrontal cortex can understand the future and planning? Uh, and, and what... You know, what, what, is, what does it mean to identify for a young kid to be a woman or a man? 
uh, what does it even mean? I mean, of course, what does it mean for an adult to say I'm a woman or a man? What does that mean? And it's, uh, but children often will reflect on gender stereotypes, which I will talk about in a minute. In addition, we see the proliferation of pornified images, especially those pornified images as non-birthing bodies. That's my turn. You don't have the, the curvaceous uh, Renaissance figures, but rather you have the slender, sexualized teenager. We see the sexualization in music videos, magazines, video games, smartphones, and social media. There's also been an increase on sex and child trafficking. Demand has actually gone up for child pornography. Porn has begun to make a more direct impact on dating and casual sex as well. 13% of sexually active teenagers, so ages between 13 and 17, have experienced choking. In Vanity Fair's article, Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse, the author Nancy Jo Sales discovers that most women uh, that use Tinder are often experience violence. 25% of women have said that they have experienced being terrified during casual sex, 25%. So this notion of sexual liberation has felt more like a trap set by men. This desire for freedom over nature has not only led to self-modification, it seems that it has also have become a violence toward others' bodies. And while sex has long been used to sell products, we have seen a sharp spike in the recent commercialization to promote a wider sexual diversity with polyamorous families in Volkswagen commercials, with transgenderism in Uber Eats and drag queens in Old Navy. And drag queens, sometimes over-sexualized, have made appearances in public libraries to read to children. The need for acceptance of a small minority has, has actually become amplified into a new norm. And so hypersexualization bombards us. While the attempt is said to relax concern over difference, it actually heightens an awareness into an obsession over all things sex and gender. Feminists have argued that what trans ideology has done has actually only strengthened gender stereotypes, not lessened them. So ironically, it's argued that women who have experienced the trauma of hypersexualized society, particularly toward women, the heightened stereotypes of what a woman should look like, and the proliferation of trans influencers on Instagram and YouTube um, um, explains rapid onset gender dysphoria among young white girls who are heavily influenced by Instagram and Tumblr. 70% of increased referrals to gender identity clinics are young white women, average age 14, and they have not previously identified as gender dysphoric. 90% have identified as same-sex attractive. This is why there is, uh, why that guy wanted to do his master's on this, and yet was told that it was unethical, transphobic. And so this theory has been criticized as transphobic and hateful. Oh, by the way, I wanted to make a note that there are also men who want to transition to female because one, they, have a, they feel more affirmed uh, because men feel vilified for being masculine. And two, they don't want to be a man which is perceived as lecherous. 
And in fact, many women and men who are interviewed said that they don't necessarily want to become the other sex. They just don't want to be the sex that they are. They're trying to escape. Um, Alongside this rapid increase, narratives of desisters and detransitioners are discounted as a tiny, tiny minority. Yet these people said that they were hurried through, it just made me think, I mean, transgenderism was a tiny, tiny minority that needed amplification. And those who detransition that are a tiny, tiny minority need to be diminished because it doesn't suit. Uh, so a detransitioner is the one who, who uh, has gender reassignment, medical transition. A desister is usually who goes through a social transition. They, they cross-dress and then they go back. They identify as trans, but then they say, well, actually, I was not trans. I was gay, but I didn't do any medical intervention. Yet these, uh, these desisters and detransitioners said that they were hurried through the process and not even given time to discover their root causes. So when research is denied as transphobic, when dialogue is canceled as harmful, and when a call for further counseling is potentially ridiculed as traumatizing, how are we then to do anything but hurry up the process to help one to be fulfilled in their chosen body? Okay, so in summary of this review, we see the impact of freedom over nature has done to individuals, children, young women, families, and society. In my opinion, this freedom over nature has led to devastating effects on bodies, not just one's own body, but on others as well. Now I turn to the biblical view of sexuality. So that you just got caught up on what I said previously and I tried to make it more succinct. So what does the Bible have to offer in the midst of these discussions and debates? I believe that it's positive and persuasive. And so I just kind of gave you a, the scenic view of what's happening in its implications. And now I'm going to try to give you a scenic view and implications of the biblical view. But before I begin laying out the two aspects of the biblically informed of uh, sexuality, I want to clarify that I'm not arguing for nature over freedom. I'm not arguing for essentialism, biological determinism. Essentialism is a sense that uh, nature defines what, uh, nature is the ultimate definition, or that uh, is, uh, I mean, essentialism means a whole bunch of things, but uh, what I mean it as is that, uh, that the essence of a woman is, you know, um, that I could define what the essence of a woman is biologically, um, like the biological essentialist. There's other essentialists, but that's what I mean by it. Um, the Bible does not argue for biological determinism. Sometimes you hear Christians say, well, that's not natural. What do they mean by natural? Uh, uh, I understand why humans revolt at the idea of being determined by nature. We want to make our choices. We don't want to be ghosts in the machine. Uh, We want to have meaningful lives, and we want uh, freedom in relation to our bodies, in relation to nature. The Christian believes that neither freedom nor nature can give us the full truth. Neither one can be the authority, uh, particularly in sexual ethics. The Bible says that there's no aspect in creation 
that can give us the full truth. Rather, we have to look to the creator. What we need is communication from this creator to know what it means to be human, what it means to live in creation. And so the Bible is my source on giving coherence to freedom in nature. Uh, and so when we have a God's eye view, he gives coherence to these two because they're no longer in conflict, but we understand the relationship of these two. And uh, <clears throat> as you will hear me say later, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now, the Bible may be a surprising source as something I'm calling positive around sexual ethics. Many assume that it promotes a repressed, even anti-body sexuality and 1950s gender stereotypes. Now, while this might be true in some churches, it's not true of the Bible. One may want to, as I said earlier, reject the biblical sexuality uh, worldview that I'm about to present, but I want you to know what you're rejecting. And I think that if you hear it out, you need to deal with its implications, even if you want to reject it. So, okay, so I'm going to look at these two aspects. One, that sexuality, um, that sex is sacred. Uh, and two, that sex is not ultimate. I will explain what I mean by those in a minute. That sex is sacred and that sex is not ultimate. Those are the only two points I'm going to look at. Um, but uh, just before I do, I want to, I was talking about our understanding of the body is uh, nature and mind, mind and body, freedom in nature. Well, how does the Bible view the human? Uh, you know, some will view the soul encased in the body. This is not the biblical view of the body or the self. Uh, this is one person's definition. It's succinct, so I'm going to use it. The soul is understood to be the form of the body, not a separate substance. If the soul has an inner sense of something, it is of and through the body. Souls aren't radically detached from bodies. They are the principle that informs them, organizes them, and grounds their root capacities. I hope that you could understand that. Uh, basically, our souls and our bodies are an integrated whole, and that spirituality is expressed physically. And uh, that righteousness is right expression, right living in the bodies that were created by God. Okay, my first point, sex is sacred. And this is really looking at marriage and family, the recovery of the biological or the natural family. So when God made all things, he declared that all things were very good. This included humanity being made male and female in God's image, and this included sexuality. Um, God's very first command to humanity is to have sex, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, God is no killjoy. We will return uh, to that in a moment. But for now, let's focus on the other aspects of sexuality that we see in the creation account, which is quite profound. Well, it's not quite profound. It is profound. When Adam first sees Eve, he becomes poetic. At last, now you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This was an expression of delight in finding another person and rejoicing in the complementary nature of their bodies. So there's an importance of gender difference in the creation account. 
Adam's words also implied beauty and pleasure. I knew some Christians who would only have sex with the light turned out. They saw it as sheer utility, but that's not how the Bible sees sex. There's delight, beauty, and pleasure, not just for men, but as for women as well, as we see in the Song of Songs. And even Paul says in one of his letters, the man's body belongs to the woman. Okay, moving on. Yeah, but I'm just talking about the pleasure that, um, yeah. It's often argued, it's in, you know, that the Bible argues just for men's pleasure of women's bodies. And I'm just saying the count that the Bible also speaks of the woman's pleasure. Um, and that needs to be emphasized more than the other at this point. Okay. <laughs> No, men and women should both enjoy sex, not just women. I know that's a constant confusion. Um, so then the creation account also says that man and woman shall become one flesh. So this speaks of unity, not just joy and pleasure, but unity given through sexuality. Um, not only a unity of the male and the female, but you can even see that there's a unity of the mind and the body. Freedom in nature. Now, some argue that that unity of two becoming one is a figure of speech, not a reality. I've even heard this recently. Two people cannot literally become one. One writer put it, in spite of what the book Genesis says about lovers becoming one flesh, we never truly become one flesh with another, no matter how intimate our relationship. We cannot fully know another's inner life. We can, we can keep secrets from one another. Now, this was a book on theology. There's a theolog theological book on the body. But this is a complete misunderstanding of sexuality as merely biological, chemical, and or romantic. Um, when it says that the man and woman become one flesh, it's not speaking of this enmeshment that happens through this chemical reaction of our two bodies that happens during um, orgasm. Rather, it's a divine declaration. This divine bond of one flesh is more than the sum of its parts. Jesus reaffirms this when he said, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God puts together, let no one separate. So he sees that this sexual union of being spoken of as one flesh um, is of sacred character. Now, the sacred character of sex, the sexual union between the man and the woman, uh, does not just point to the union of the man and the woman. It also points beyond the couple themselves and even to Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. Kind of strange to think of sex pointing to Jesus. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. That's in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. So to misuse or profane this bond is not just to go against the other. It's also to go against Christ and his claim on our bodies. Our bodies have sacred obligations. Very different from the self-expression. 
Or Paul argues elsewhere, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In fact, that whole passage there, which I'm not going to read because it's quite long and deep, and I don't want to have to explain it all, um, even though it would be worthwhile, is that he's talking to these men to, to keep away from porn. The word is porneia. Uh, sexual immorality is the way it's translated. Porneia wasn't just pornographic images. It wasn't so much. It was more of the misuse of prostitutes and sex slaves. And um, because you could have sex with a slave or a prostitute and it was not considered adultery. Or rape. It was only considered adultery is if you were sleeping with a freeborn woman who was married or even unmarried because she's a virgin pledged and so the adultery was, a, was an offense against her husband or against her father. And so Paul's like, stay away from porneia, stay away from sexual immorality, uh, because the, mo- the body is not meant for porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So there's sacred obligations to the sexual body. You were bought with a price to so glorify God in your body. Um, What's that passage? That is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, 13 through 20, if you like. So it also shows that the body is not merely a collection of atoms and desire, a dualistic division or polarity between freedom and nature. The body belongs to the Lord and expresses God's purposes through them. Our spiritual acts are embodied. Now, as an aside, the Bible speaks of sex as sacred. Um, I think that that gives us an understanding of why people think of sex as something fulfilling, as giving us an identity. Yet people are seeking its value without knowing its source or its purpose. And because of that, are having a negative impact on their body and on other bodies. It causes one to sin not just against their own body, but against the Lord. So what I've said so far is that sex is good, delightful, pleasurable, uh, unitive, unitive, or whatever, and sacred. But it's also creative. So what is the unity of sexual union for? What might be the purpose of the man and the woman becoming one flesh? God intends this unity between the man and the woman to bring security and stability to family life and to society. I want you to hear that. God intends this unity between the man and the woman to bring security and stability to family life and to society. So there's social obligations to sexual union. First, this one flesh brings forth life, the life of a child, their biological child. Uh, uh, A nun, Mary Timothy Prokes, wrote in her book, Toward a Theology of the Body, articulates a Catholic understanding that the sexual union between a husband and wife should be open to the life of the other. So that's why Catholics are against contraception. That they want to be open to the life of the other. So they see sexual union as a moment of hospitality. And that begins with the life of the child, which is outside the couple's control. Um, I know one couple who... uh, use contraceptive until they wanted a child and then they went straight to IVF. So it was a whole technological control over reproduction. The Catholic view says no, allow the body 
to take its natural course and see if it has God's blessing. But not just that, but have a but it's for the posture of hospitality to potential life. Um, and this is what then opens the family to the life of all others. So they saying that when um, when we're open to the life of a child through our sexual union, then we become more open to the stranger, to Christ Himself. So this understanding of the sexual union provides a natural, stable support system for the child conceived, first in the womb of the woman, and then in the life of the parents and siblings, and then in society. So this one flesh not only brings forth the life of the child, but it also brings security and stability to society. This unity is the building block for all of society. The sexual union between the man and the woman is the building block of society. So we can return to the original command, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. What we see here is God's first command to humanity is a provision for the stewardship of the earth through sex. It's not about exploitation, domination, or even population. It's about the stewardship of the garden, which is what ancient cosmologies implied in the productive life of culture. Um, this is an important point. Uh, marriage and family are seen as God's creation, and its place is the source of life to society and it's the source of life to cultural development. Marriage throughout history has always been seen as a naturally arising institution, a biological necessity, and that the governments have always sought to protect its sacred place as its lifeblood. Um, they did not see marriage and family as a legal construct as the West has come to see it. Rather, marriage and family is where all of society begins. It's the fundamental building block. Um, how is it the fundamental building block to society? Well, it's family, marriage and family is a microcosm of all society. When a child is born, there arises a natural authority of the parents and the union of the parents to the child. Now, bad parenting doesn't negate authority any more than divorce negates the sacred union between the husband and the wife. This natural institution of marriage becomes family and then begins to multiply like cells in a healthy organism into something greater, into families, into communities, and then into society. So you can see this multiplication happening in the Bible. For this reason, so in Genesis it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what we see is that there's a purpose for their unity, becoming one flesh. The couple goes out from their families and unites two other families through their own sexual union and expands that family out. And when their children go out and hold fast to another, and so families are multiplied like a healthy organism and then combined. So it brings security and stability to society when this natural institution is preserved. When it's redefined, then it causes chaos. Therefore, the Bible sees the union in marriage as a concern 
not just for our generation, but the next generation. Roger Scruton writes, marriage marks an existential transition, a move away from the concerns of one generation for the concern for the next. Now this is important that he's, what are you about to say? It is not an act of gratification, but an act of renunciation. The beneficiaries of which are not the spouses themselves, but their future children. So he's saying that marriage is an existential transition and its whole union is not for themselves, but it's, a, it's an act of renunciation to bless children and families in society. How vastly different from the vision of sexuality of individual self-expression that we see in today's climate. Okay, so that was the first one, is sex is sacred, looking at marriage and family. So now I want to say sexual union is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate, and this is looking at the family of God. So this is dealing more with singleness. And this is my last point before I get to conclusion. As essential as the unity of marriage, family, and society, and as important to see the sexual union as a gift from God, sex is not the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be human. The most fundamental aspect is that we are made in the image of God. So each person is centrally defined as being made in the image of God. This is the foundation, the only foundation for the dignity of every human person. Just as sex is declared as sacred by God, the sacred dignity of each human person is also divinely declared. This is not something that we find in nature. We don't naturally find dignity of human people in nature. It is a revelation. It is a divine declaration. Which is interesting because so much of our human rights is built and our idea of freedom over nature is built on this sacred not, um, idea that every human life has dignity, but doesn't look at the sacred obligations of what sex implies. Sexual union is not essential in the resurrection either. Jesus says that in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given into marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He said this in response to a group of uh, uh, Sadducees who wondered mockingly which man a woman would be married to if she got married seven times. And so Jesus says, you don't understand anything about the resurrection. Neither are given into marriage. They're like the angels in heaven. So as a result, we see the teaching and the honoring of celibacy in the early Christian church. Jesus himself never married and was celibate, so was Paul. But you need to know that celibacy is a radical teaching. And it was a radical teaching in a hyper-sexualized culture. Um, and celibacy was seen as a gift that people had to build up God's purposes. Consider that feminists often point to this as an early moment of feminism, celibacy. At a time of high mortality rate, a woman's value was in her being able to produce children, that is citizens for Rome. A woman's productivity for her husband was her supreme value. The, the one highlight wasn't getting your driver's license. It wasn't the cantillion. It was the, uh, your life was before marriage and after marriage. Uh, uh, and if you could not have children, you were not marryable. 
and marginalized. If a woman was married and discovered that they couldn't, then I believe that would annul the relationship. Women could easily be divorced. Yet women were welcomed into the church, not just as widows and former prostitutes, but also those dedicated to celibacy, to be active in the life of the family of God. They were no longer defined by needing to be sexually productive. Jesus said that some people were made eunuchs. Eunuchs, you can think of celibates um, in this case. Jesus said that some people were made eunuchs at birth, some at the hands of men. And yet some choose to become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This was a liberating word. Women's value lay not in their sexuality, but as equal images of God. They were co-partners in the gospel message. Think of Lydia, um, who opened her large estate to host the apostles, and that in turn became a central church in the early Christian church. Celibacy was not the consolation prize for those who could not get married. It was an honorable state within the church. It was a place of honor because single people could play a prominent role in the family of God, in the message of the gospel. Paul said that he wished that all were like him, that is, single, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, this liberating sexual ethic of celibacy was not just extended to women, but also to slaves and prostitutes. So far as I've been talking about women, I've been talking about freeborn women. So you just think of upper class women. But the majority of society was made up of the lower class. The society was made up of slaves and prostitutes that served the economy of Rome. And these people did not have rights, um, and they therefore had no value. They could be used like property. Their very bodies were considered dishonorable and could be used with impunity. This included sexual use. The life of the prostitute would often be three to four years because they could be used so much, and they were used by slaves. Um, they say that there was no works on masturbation in the Greco-Roman society because they had no need for it. They would use prostitutes and slaves for them. And once your body became dishonorable, there was not the possibility of becoming honorable. So the notion that Greco-Roman society was a sexual liberated one, which I'm often told, is completely false. It's a lie. It was a society of sexually trafficked people, and most of them being young. And yet... In the early Christian church, one was not defined sexually in this way. Paul wrote, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, they too were equal heirs, and they too were honorable. They were dishonorable in society, but honorable in the family of God. They served as leaders in the mission of the church. No wonder the marginalized flocked to the early Christian church. Consider the Ethiopian to whom Philip explained the gospel. The Ethiopian was a eunuch. 
and not only was celibate because he was a male, he would be considered transgender. Um, he would have had no beard, a higher voice. They were considered monstrosities, freaks in that society. And yet, the Ethiopian uh, in uh, the book of Acts. And so the Holy Spirit leads because they're castrated. Um, and so uh, Philip was led by, um, taken by the Holy Spirit to meet this Ethiopian who's reading the script of Isaiah. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And Ethiopian says, how can I if someone doesn't explain it to me? And so Philip tells him, starts from that passage, and then explains what happened with Jesus. And, uh, and I've mentioned this in my talk on sexuality and shame, but what happened is dramatic that he was a Jewish convert, but because he was a eunuch, because he was transgender, mutilated, he could not enter into the temple courts. But when he comes back, he receives this reading from Philip about reading this text. Uh, then he asks this dramatic question. Then there's no reason for me not to be baptized. That's a very interesting way of saying it. What he's saying is there's no reason for me not to be fully included in the kingdom of God. And Philip is like, yes. What's wonderful is that this Ethiopian went back to Ethiopia and started the Coptic church, which is one of the largest Christian communities in all, um, all the world today. You, you want me to? Yeah. You just like it so much? Yeah. No, I think it's relevant. Well, uh, the passage that he was reading was um, talking about a man who was cut off from descendants. And, uh, and he's like, I wonder what this means. And so when he sees Philip, he goes, is this the prophet speaking or is he speaking of someone else? And, and I've mentioned that Philip, I mean, the Ethiopian is probably thinking, I really relate to whoever this guy's talking about, someone who's cut off, emasculated has no descendants, has no possibility for family. And, uh, and so, and then even later on, uh, a chapter, a few paragraphs later in Isaiah, it says, do not let the eunuch say that he's a withered tree, but that he will welcome sons and daughters. And, uh, and so when Philip starts to tell him the gospel, that no, Jesus was the one cut off with no descendants, and that you can be adopted into God's family through him, that the eunuch can see himself as becoming a part and that he can have sons and daughters, not biologically, but spiritually in the family of God. So yes, it is it's wonderful. And I, that's one of my favorite stories. So thank you for asking me to tell it. Uh, but this lecture is already long, so let me move on. <clears throat> so how might we make a place for various singles into the life of the church? into the mission of God, how might we honor celibacy as a gift and as something to offer the world? Uh, and I was thinking about this is that, you know, some of this, some of this gender dysphoria is from the hypersexualization of society. And even people who don't have gender dysphoria, we've had people who come here who are asexual or who just don't want to be married because they want to escape the, the hypersexualization of society. And um, I just think about, wow, this, this is actually a liberating word for someone to say, actually, I can use my singleness in the honor of God rather than uh, um, and not be entrapped by all these power, sexual power plays. 
um, I think that that would be real rest to difference rather than hyper sensitizing us or hypersexualizing us. So what does it mean for a person to use celibacy as a gift for God's purposes in the world? Well, Richard Rollheiser, uh, uh, I would say a Catholic, a liberal Catholic, he wrote a book called Holy Longing, and that he says that singles have a unique gift and role in the church in their sexuality. Sorry. Whereas married couples have to focus their intention inwardly toward one another and their family, the single person is driven out by their sexuality toward others. Uh, this sexuality is a driver that does not need to be expressed by orgasm. Society has taught us intimacy must be expressed by orgasm. That's when you know that you have true intimacy. But this is, he's saying that no, orgasm has its place through the sacred union and, and bringing blessing, but there's also sexual drives in us that don't, doesn't have to be met by the demand of orgasm. It drives us to the other. Um, and, uh, and it's a way of becoming one with uh, the family of God. Now, this is a call on every Christian, whether married or not, but the single person has more ample opportunity to care for many outside the immediate family. Uh, Wesley Hill, he's a celibate gay man, uh, Christian, uh, says singleness is an intentional choice to live without marriage, children, and even sexual intimacy in order to be freer to pray, more available to serve others, and more directly poised to bear witness to the soon-to-appear realm in which the risen saints neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Um, elsewhere, uh, uh, stay with me, I'm almost there. Wesley Hill. I'm almost there. I want to talk about gender a little bit. Elsewhere, Paul talks about this radical equality, saying there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some have made this statement into something it's not, um, as if it suggests that being male and being female is meaningless. But Paul is not negating these concepts. They are a part of our createdness, that we express ourselves as male and female. Rather, he's relativizing them in light of the gospel. He's speaking of radical equality, that no one has a special claim in Christ. All must come the same, wheel, um, the same way, to kneel in repentance before Jesus and to be adopted by God's Holy Spirit into this new family. There's no exceptions. It did not matter if you were freeborn or slave, Jew or Greek, male or female, all had to come the same way. So power dynamics were relativized. So here, Paul is not indicating that these traits are negated. Whenever he went into a town, he would speak to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Um, in his letters, he addresses men, and then he addresses women, and then he addresses children. Um, these other attributes, as Jewish or Greek, as parents or as children, as male or female, um, are how we live out that calling 
but our primary identity is in Christ Jesus. But this leads me to ask if the family of God negates marriage and family as primary. Doesn't Jesus respond to the crowd when he hears that his mother and brothers are looking for him? Who are my brothers and my mother? Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And didn't Paul also encourage to say single? I'd rather you be single. But unlike the state's decision to redefine marriage and family, the family of God, the nature of the family of God does not tamper with the fundamental structure of the biological family. It remains good and sacred. But it does relativize it. Our roles are secondary um, to our being in Christ. This means that whether one is a freeborn married male, um, a freeborn married male, or a former sex slave, each are equal in the family of God. This means that a married person or a fertile couple do not have a higher claim to Christ or his blessings than anyone else. Now, we do often see that marriage and family is applauded in the church. Um, yet when people praise marriage and family with no, uh, with no regard to single people, and single, people, uh, single life is diminished and not honored, then the praise of marriage and family is idolatry. Perhaps it's because marriage and family has been so under attack for several decades that the church has overreacted. Churches have also been guilty of sanctifying their views on gender roles through the misuse of the Bible. The Christian must be careful not to overreact to cultural changes by biblicizing earlier cultural norms. We must instead look to what the Bible says. You know, Deborah was a mighty warrior. You know? This is getting terrible. Um, I moved too much. Uh, the Bible allows for far more diversity than what the churches even recognize today. As if cooking dinner is the woman's role or going out is the uh, role of the man. This is more a result of the Industrial Revolution than anything biblical, which is also freedom over nature. The biblical vision was much more tied to the land, to stewarding the land together than we have today, and that the economy of each home, that the word economy comes from household in Greek, um, came from both the husband and wife doing joint chores on the farm. How might we see the marriage of singles and families in the family of God? This is where I'm leading at the, my end of how how do we see these together, marriage and family and singles in the family of God? I believe that our failure to deal with this is why the church has such a weakened voice toward discussions around sexuality and gender. The church can so easily fall prey to cultural norms, whether they're traditional or progressive, because we have not taken the radical call of all that it means to be the family of God or the body of Christ. We need a gospel of radical welcome uh, so that Jesus can give people his rest through the proclamation of his gospel, not just having people fit into a cultural norm of, of marriage and family or gender stereotypes. But what can this look like? How do we love one another as he loved us? Um, I want to quote Wesley Hill again. 
because I think that he gives us, uh, uh, or I want to talk about him as a way of an example. He wrote an article called Jigs for Marriage and Celibacy. Uh, jig is like rejig, how to rework. Um, so in this article, he explains how each life, the celibate one and the married one, offers gifts to the other. Yet, as we think about the Christian life, we can't just think of it as lived alone or for oneself. So Christianity is not a mystical path. It's a communal one. It's one that where our, our gifts are shared, but so are our burdens. The life of the Christian is one of renunciation. Often we believe that renunciation is just for the single person, particularly in the area of sexual activity. Yet this reduces what we're called to do, that we're all called to serve one another in love, to be slave to one another in love. Renunciation, Wesley Hill argues, is for both the single person and the married couple, and that the renunciation is meant to open up the way for each other to carry each other's burden. As one of my colleagues said, I like being invited to Christmas with a family as a single person, but what about picking me up late from the airport as you would your spouse or child? What about da living daily life with me? And this is how Wesley Hill lives his life with a family. So Wesley Hill actually is living with a family. Uh, they don't just share special events together, they share the mundane, the ordinary. And it's beautiful. Um, but this also extends not just to the family uh, um, renouncing, not renouncing, living in a renounced way. How do you say that? Uh, uh, the marriage and family is not supposed to just uh, live in submission to the single, but the single as well to the family life. Eve Tushnet said of herself as a celibate person, are there ways I could get a little closer to offering the on-call love my married and parenting friends so often must provide? Are there times when I hold myself back from others because I'm too attached to my own freedom? the pleasure of my own company, the security of my own plans and preferences? Do I choose ways of helping and giving that are more gratifying to my ego, such as giving advice or selecting presents I know they'll enjoy and praise, but avoid the boring or gross tasks of love, like making casseroles and learning to burp infants? Could I live the more demanding and chaotic life of the person who has a duty to love? So this call to renunciation for the married and to the single person are difficult, yet it's for the good and the healing of society. It presses against the narrative of individual expression, against freedom over nature, which has caused such damage to bodies and to society. Rather, in Christ, we see the coherence of our souls and bodies as integrated into our service toward God's creation and redemption. And so Wesley Hill ends with this question, which is provocative, right before my conclusion. What ought we to put in place so that married couples and single Christians alike come to resemble the status quo less and less and start to illumine God's kingdom more and more? What kinds of things ought we to be doing, in other words, to help each other along toward the holy martyrdom of either self-giving marriage or self-giving singleness? So in this talk, in conclusion, I reviewed the predominant view of sexuality and culture. It is shaped by what it means to be human. It's a desire not to be just an animal, not to be just a machine, but a free human being with choices and significance. 
But in order to have this within a closed system, we've adopted freedom over nature. Yet I had said that this freedom actually leads to technological control over the sexual body, state control over the biological family, and social control over individuals, often leading to gender stereotypes and hypersexualization. This freedom has produced a society of people enslaved. Then I spoke about how the biblical view of sexuality can be positive and persuasive, that it leads to true liberation when it's lived out faithfully. The Bible offers a vision, not often seen in churches, of the blessing and stability of marriage and family life and of the radical nature and welcome of the family of God in Christ, welcoming all. Sexual union is a gift, but it's not ultimate. Rather, we have a freedom as people washed, sanctified, and justified by Christ. And this freedom is to be expressed by both married people and singles as we serve one another in love as co-partners and as co-heirs in the gospel. Anyone on Zoom have a question first? I'll give you a chance first. Yes, well, I just, want, uh, I just wonder, uh, Clark, um, it's not that I hold this view particularly, but the argument that I hear a lot of Christians make for same-sex marriage is the fact that Christ's command to love overrides other aspects of the, uh, of the scriptures. And I'm just wondering, how, how do you respond to that? When we talk about love, we often use a cultural definition of what love means. It means uh, perhaps a romantic and even self-giving commitment to one another, but it doesn't override our createdness. So, so God created us for particular purposes. He created the body for purposes. And you see that Paul, like even Paul doesn't, in a sense, take this overriding ethic of love, uh, quote unquote, to, uh, to dismiss other aspects of, um, of God's commands of what it means to be a sexual person. So Paul only affirms the male and the female relationship because love has its parameter uh, that that this sexual union has moral parameters yeah it just seemed to me, i think i think a lot of the problem in society today is that sex has become um more entertainment than intimate that there's the intimate the intimacy in sex is 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 being re removed from the act and it's 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 just about entertainment yeah, I mean, sure, that, that does happen a lot. But I, I, I would say that I don't think that gay couples are only looking for entertainment. I would say that there is uh, an intimacy that they have. I mean, Paul was even speaking about when the men uh, were with the temple prostitutes. And he says that they should not be united to them uh, because they unite, them, uh, they unite themselves. They become one flesh. And so he's talking about the intimacy that you're, that you're gaining from the temple prostitutes is actually meant for the Lord. I would say that they went to these temple prostitutes maybe as a social obligation, but, uh, but certainly not just for entertainment. But, well, yeah, but I think that it, it, sort of, it starts with that too in a way. But, but I mean, certainly I'm not saying that you know, a gay couple can't share intimacy, but I'm just saying that, you know, it, like you said, like it's everywhere. You know, the kids are... When I grew up, we had an age of innocence, 
and, and lacks of sophistication. And it was wonderful. Just holding a girl's hand when I was about 13 or 14 was unbelievably, you know, t to me. To go on a friend, yeah. You know, I, and I think uh, young people growing up today have lost that because it is everything you see on the newsstands and, and in the news and the way it's reported, they're getting all the, uh, you know, sexual stuff shoved down their throat in school you know where and basically they're taking the school is replacing the parents i remember hearing an interview by a teacher was say it's our job to raise the kids well no it's your job to educate the kids it's the parents job to raise the kids and it's it's all it, i just think it's a really tough time for young people to grow up I do think it's a difficult time for young people to grow up. Uh, I do believe that there's a hypersexualization around touch even, that yeah. it's hard to receive touch from someone else without it being interpreted as sexual. Yes, I, I do totally agree that there is a over and hypersexualization happening in our culture and that's confusing our young children, uh, not allowing them to go through natural development. I think that it's being, um, I mean, kids are actually approaching puberty faster nowadays um, because of the introduction of these things. Yeah. Anyway, that was a yeah, very well they're being introduced to puberty earlier, but they're marrying later. And so yeah. that's, that also causes a lot of instability. Okay, Liz. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering, like, uh, to your point about the technological control of the sexual body, what is, why is that bad? <laughs> like, I, I feel like you pointed out, like, a lot of why is the technological control of the body, sexual body, bad? So Liz's question is saying, uh, why did I say technological control over the sexual body as bad? Is it all bad? Um, what about uh, she has a friend that uh, froze her, froze her eggs because she hasn't met somebody, but maybe upon the event that she meets somebody, maybe then they can have children or the couple who was helped by um, uh, fertilization or something like this. Now, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that all technological intervention is bad. I'm not saying all technological intervention um, in relation to the sexual body is bad. Uh, I do think that it brings up a lot of ethical implications that we need to work through, and we need a framework to think, okay, is this ethical or not? Uh, is it ethical for a person to freeze their eggs and then get married at the age of 50 and then have those children, uh, maybe carried by a surrogate or somebody because maybe the womb couldn't carry it by them. And, uh, and then this young child is married to very much older parents that won't be able to support them as long as they wouldn't in another situation. Um, now it's what would you mean by are you talking okay so yeah julia is saying well not every woman wants 12 to 14 children you know uh i like looking at that monty python skit every sperm is sacred and uh john cleese walks in and his catholic wife has about 40 50 children <laughs> And they're going into the poverty house because uh, because the Catholic Church won't let them use a rubber, he says. And so, because every sperm is sacred. You know the song? No, but it, it, I also, I've never seen people experience 
And what if you're a couple who don't feel called to have a family? Yeah, I mean, these, these are big discussions that each of these, um, I'm just saying that we have to work through each of them. My main point is that what we have done is that we have completely revolutionized how we think of sexuality and reproduction through technological means, uh, that we don't even ask the question of parameters. The only parameter is, can I? Uh, is it possible? Why not? And there's not a lot of rigorous discussion around the ethical implications and what grounds those ethical implications. So each of these are important. Should couples use birth control? Um, I think that that's a discussion to have. Uh, I know that Catholics would say no, because you need to be open to the other. The Protestant argument is that you should not always use it. As long as the general trajectory of a couple's life is toward, um, toward the end of bearing life in that. And then maybe restricting, like, okay, you don't want 12 or 14. Or don't want any. Yeah, let's say that for various reasons, uh, let's say that two people feel very traumatized by childhood and all this and that, or mental health issues, and they choose, they, they want to be married, but they don't, they choose not to have children. Yeah, I would say that the, that's a longer discussion, and it's very complicated, but I, I want to know what is the basis for those discussions. Is it just because it's inconvenient? Then I would have a question about that. If it's like, a, if, yeah, if they don't want to overpopulate the earth, um, I would want to know exactly what that means and, and what does overpopulation actually look like and what does that actually mean. But anyway, so I think that these are all discussions, but my main thing is we need an ethical framework, and I think freedom over nature gives us no ethical framework for that beyond personal expression. Yeah, custom babies. Yeah, custom babies. Yeah. That's right. Race, sex selection. Uh, yeah. Or uh, and there's uh, not only is there sex selective abortions. There's also. Um, we know uh, a common friend that she had a Down syndrome child and the nurses were surprised that she wanted to keep her child because they didn't, they didn't see that that baby, or at least the majority of people, 99%, I think they said that was the first person they knew that didn't keep their baby, that did keep the baby. And so you just wanna think, okay, when there's that much control, it might be innocent for one person, and you know, in a sense, quote unquote, innocent, but then you start thinking, well, actually, because we're all socially isolated, we don't realize social implications of this. And what does it mean to redefine what it means to be human? And we could even talk about transhumanism that uh, uh, Yuval Harari has talked about, where we, we might say the people who have and the have-nots are by who can modify themselves and, and what kind of babies they have and so on. So, yeah, there's, if we choose freedom over nature, and, and have technological control, or that's the basis for technological control, that can just cause a lot of problems, um, vast, vast problems. Society. Yeah, Sarah. Um, why is masturbation frowned upon? Why is masturbation frowned upon? Yeah. 
uh, it depends. Like uh, the Catholic view would be that every sperm is sacred. Of course, what does that do for women? <laughs> uh, so masturbation is not entirely frowned upon within the Christian tradition. Yeah, like health test studies have showed that there's health benefits. Now, um, yeah, I mean, well, one, I would say that I don't doubt that there's health benefits. But two, I want to say, do I need to reduce the ethics of masturbation to health benefits? There's also just natural biological drives that occur. The primary question is, why, why is it being pursued? Is it for escape? Is it for control? Is it like a, is it like a way of um, handling anxiety or something like that? Or is it fantasy? Is it fantasy that leads to the objectification of other bodies? It is rife with problems, but the Christian church would not say it's entirely disallowable. It would depend on which Christian tradition, I guess, and how you would theologically form it, because the, the Catholic would say, well, you know, um, at least with male masturbation, it can become obsessive. Um, and uh, it's where your mind is going with fantasy and, uh, yeah, and like I said, the objectification. Avoidance of intimacy, yeah, there's actually, I heard, I don't remember where I read this or heard this, but I heard in Japan that maybe it was uh, Jim's talk, but that, uh, that people are so terrified of sexual intimacy that they would rather masturbate to porn because sexual intimacy is just too difficult and too embarrassing and bodies are being judged. So it's just easier for me to masturbate. Yeah, sex has, um, they apparently teenagers are having less sex than they did in the 90s. But you might think it's good on the surface, but I feel like they're actually deeper. Yeah, so yeah, you would think it's better, but sexualization is more hyper-sexualized now, but there's less intimacy. It does, yeah, Sarah says it, it creates unrealistic expectations. Yeah, so Julia and many dating, uh, Julia was saying that some women, even Christian women, are subjected to uh, violence within their sexual relationship because of the influence of porn. Okay. I had a quick, uh, I just wanted to say I really enjoyed this presentation. I thought you kind of really ironed out a lot of your thinking and and I had some questions to come into today, and now I'm still pondering because you, you kind of tackled a lot of things I was, I was sort of thinking about. When we left from last week, or so two weeks ago, I kind of really got into this frame where it was about um, this idea that, you know, this is so, some of this is left over from communism with the blank slate constructionist, like the constructionist, social constructionist theories, and we're still feeling that that type of consequence. And that's sort of, you kind of were sort of touching on that with the, the nature versus freedom. And so I'm wondering how do we integrate our, you know, I, I believe we, we do have some sort of uh, tendencies. We do have natural tendencies as part of who we are. And so how do we best integrate that in this sort of view? I feel like you need a part three 
where you, <laughs> where you give us strategies. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to follow up on the second part of the question, but let me just respond about Russia real quick. I know that I knew somebody who worked a long time in uh, behind the Iron Curtain and had a lot and did a lot of work in Russia. And he said that uh, social control was very aimed at uh, creating sexual uh, individual uh, sexuality. That it really wanted to break down families and children in order to increase the state power. And indoctrination, yes. The indoctrination. And so, uh, so the state has, has actually interest in individualizing sexuality. Uh, at least it did in uh, Russia. In yes, be because there's so much information transfer within and cultural transfer within the family. Because what you're doing is you're breaking down the natural buffers, the natural mm -hmm. institutions, and uh, and you're and you're needing legislation to take care of everybody. But uh, that doesn't mean more work for the government; it means more power. Yeah. So, what's the second part of the? What's the exact question? I, I wasn't clear. Oh, I was, I was wondering if that kind of, if when you were thinking about when you reframed it rather than ego paganism as sort of freedom versus if you were thinking along these lines as well, that it's sort of, you know, the, that the social constructionism is what this idea of being a blank slate that you can change to whatever you want is sort of still haunting us today. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, and by not just being a blank slate, but also feeling that um, that nature is an enemy uh, that we have to rewrite or overwrite. So the hope is that it's a blank slate, but um, but it's trying. But as soon as you try to be a blank slate about choosing whichever gender you like, or you know, out of the seventy-one possibilities on Facebook, uh, is that you you end up have to deal with nature. You have to, and so. Uh, you anyway, have to wage war, yeah. You have to wage war. One person said, what does it mean to have a female brain within a male's body or, uh, um, or, a, or a woman trapped in a man's body? Like, where does that sense come from? Like, it's puzzled philosophers on uh, what does it mean to identify as your own gender? Like, it's a problematic, Philosophical pro it's a it's a philosophical problem even for one who identifies with their own biology, their mm -hmm. own male sex. How could how could someone with a male body identify as a female in the mind? And so they're looking for neurobiological connections, but they haven't found anything conclusive. And so what does it mean? Because this is one of the major arguments of saying I I feel that I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, or vice versa. It's like, well, what is that sense attached to? You can't have an identity that's free-floating. Uh, it has to be attached to something. And if it's not attached to something biological, it has to be something tied to sociological. Or well, you, you can have a free-floating sense of self, but we, I think we have a, a diagnosis for that. I think that's borderline personality disorder or something. A disassociation? Yeah, a disassociation. Yeah, I mean, you're not saying, I know, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're not saying that transgender people are... No, I'm not saying that at all, no. Okay, okay. <laughs> clarify that. Yeah, I mean, and that's why it was for a while called gender, dis uh, gender identity disorder. But it has been changed in the DSM to a gender dysphoria. 
Yeah. But, but the main point is that uh, it's we always have to deal with nature. That um, our sense of self cannot truly free float. It has to deal with nature, and usually it's dealing with it in conflict. If you're a blank slate. Yeah. There was a study done, uh, you know, by uh, Harvard and MIT, you know, that involved about half a million people. And they say uh, it is effectively impossible to predict an individual sexual behavior from their genome. And so basically they're saying, yes, the genome does play, have an aspect in it, but it's, it's relatively small. There's a huge war over what is scientifically admissible. They feel that only certain things can be seen scientifically because it's because it is socially acceptable. And so uh, as we have more gender and sexual diversity, the more science can tell us about these things. But right now we're closed to that. Where does the third, sixth, yeah, androgyny or intersex. That some species will sing. Uh, so Sarah's asking, well, what do we do about the third sex? All these that don't fit so clearly into the male-female category, for whatever reason, intersex, hermaphroditism, and that there is adaptation among species uh, toward adapting towards certain circumstances, environmental factors. Well, one thing that makes humanity unique is our self-awareness and and that we can't always look to animal behavior to know how we should behave uh, it's biological yes it is environmental it is biological but we need to be careful about comparing one species to the next because i mean if julia wanted to behave like a black widow i'm in trouble you know what i mean and so sometimes people want to make a case for how humans should act based on animal behavior yeah, that some people make the argument that uh, that there shouldn't be gay sex because we don't see that in nature. I don't know about. I don't think that's true. Uh, so, so Sarah is saying that uh, what we have seen through evolutionary processes in other species, which could be could implicate humanity at some point, or something like that. Uh, where there is a, a development of of the um, of humanity between this transitional point or how they might respond to environmental factors. Yeah, there are social issues, and what they found is that um, you know studies. And I was talking about female brain, and they were trying. They actually tested uh, trans female brains after death, and they tested, and they did show similarities to the feminine brain. But they said that it was not um, what they were looking for were causal connections. And they couldn't say it was causes or effects because these peaceful people presented themselves as feminine and treated as feminine. And therefore there was neuroplasticity. And so there was neurological changes. And so we have to be careful because there is adaptation of the brain. And, uh, but it's not making causal connections. And so we need to be very careful about making causal connections in, in minds and brains and how that implies sexuality. Sarah was saying that uh, people like her have experienced 
trauma, and that can even be genetically passed down. Right. Yeah, it does create biological changes. And I, I believe that. I, I, I do think that humanity, uh, there is adaptations within humanity. I even think that it's, does anyone know, have any, Wendell, you have some word on this. You might. So is she referring to epigenetics? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, there, that, so epigenetics is really, really new, and we don't know a lot about it. We're still kind of, it's, it's sort of this radical idea that came out that there are some things that seem to be heritable outside of genetics. That's why it's called epi. And that there seems to be potential, like they showed it in rats and a few things. I, I'm not really up on where it's at right now, but a while, you know, a decade or so ago, I think they were able to show some things, rats were able to pass on some things like aversion to um, certain chemicals. And, and that seemed to operate through an epigenetic pathway. But, but we don't know how much epigenetics is involved in humans. We, there's, it's just wide open. There's just, you know, there's, it's not, we, there's a lot more complexity than we realized originally, I would say. And I think that's a good theme that we like to think we understand a lot, but we're really ignorant to where our, uh, where our ignorance are. We, the unknown unknowns, right? Yes. The, the, the second thing I noticed when we're talking about evolution or things like that, there's, so there's something called a naturalistic fallacy. The naturalistic yeah, so if, if you studied evolution, it's considered an amoral process. In other words, it, it doesn't have a strict moral goal. Um, it, it's, it's just a process. Um, and, in that, and in that light, um, you, know, you, you, you should be careful about looking to it to, to have a morality. It doesn't give you a moral sense. You know, and, and, and I think that's a really important point for these type of discussions. The, the there's a there's a second point I was going to make with that. The, oh yeah, the other one is that um, generally we consider humans not to really be undergoing strong selective evolution at the moment, or strong selective pressures. We don't really get, there's not much evolution occurring. There is a little bit, but it seems like for the most part there isn't those natural pressures that are that are selecting out survival and whether or not people will reproduce as much as there would have been a long time ago. So again, I think we have to be really careful when we're talking about, you know, if there's things are adaptation, we're very, very flexible in our cognition. Um, and I think the best way to think of genes is that they kind of set a threshold. They set tendencies, but they don't, they're not destiny. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the best, best way I, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hardware, software kind of ideas. Yeah, but I think the blank slate goes too far. Yes. Because it's saying it, it doesn't define any thresholds, which I don't think is true either. Yes. So the question is, are therapists and medical practitioners becoming less or more biased? Um, I don't know if I can address that. All I can say is that uh, therapists and medical professionals uh, are feeling the pressure that they're trying to do their research, they're trying to do their job, but there are political pressures uh, to pursue it in one way or the other. 
Um, right now, the, the stronger pressure, well, it depends on who you ask. Um, some say that uh, maybe pro-transactivism would say that it, there's still so much transphobia um, inherent to even gender identity clinics and others would say that there's so much pressure that they can't even name themselves in interviews. Uh, there are, apparently there are some committees that are making mission statements or standards of care and that those who disagree with um, a certain ideology are not allowed to be on the committee because they're transphobic or unethical because they consider that there needs to be maybe more counseling that that uh, the right now there's a push for younger and younger ages because they want to lessen the trauma of those who are having to experience the op the wrong body um, but I would say from all my reading I don't know I hear a lot of pressures on therapists and medical practitioners I don't know how real that is um, because I hear both sides and it's it's kind of like watching the US election. You know, who do you believe, CNN or Fox, or neither, or both? And you just get confused. You're like watching, you're looking at two different worlds. And so when I'm reading different, when I'm reading um, uh, trans affirming uh, stuff on research, and uh, when there's a more conservative approach, then uh, they seem to disagree on what research is allowed and what's not. They all agree that there is, has not yet found a neurobiological source or cause for gender dysphoria. And there is a, a delegitimizing of looking at rapid onset gender dysphoria, which um, some would say is not real. That it, what has happened is not that there's a rapid onset of gender dysphoria, just said, like one person said, just like there wasn't rapid onset homosexuality or you know when gay marriage was legalized it wasn't like it just what it was is it finally opened up the gates for people to express who they truly were and that they were afraid of expressing beforehand now their resources and so the reason we see this rapid uptick is not through sociological pressures um or um social manipulation to make them something they're not because no one wants to be trans is kind of the motto but it has allowed them to um, yeah, but there's always been a like, like, Yeah, there has new, new, like, there new, there Yeah, and so there are, there are, yeah, I mean, there's always peer pressure. Jim Paul says that some people hold, and I think Abigail Schreier does, um, but this idea that there's, a, that this is more of a social contagion and that it has spread more like a virus that there are medical reports like with freud uh, with ma ma uh, mass blindness that there was um anorexia and then self-harm and it has always happened among this age group uh, they've always seen a spike in the age group of young women between the ages of 13 and 17. they see that this is happening over and over again so this is not the first time 13 to 17 year old girls have been affected by mass movements. Um, and there's something to that because what you see is that entire classes, entire teams or mass groups are identifying as transgendered at the same time. 
So you have to think that there's other explanations than just finally opening the gate to allowing people to be who they truly were all the time and now they feel the freedom to. And so there has to be an explanation of that and that's not allowed because that's considered transphobic to consider that there's anything as, such as rapid onset gender dysphoria. Wendell? Yeah, I was just gonna say that that article ended up getting retracted and then republished again. You're after... talking about the Tillman? You're talking about the Tillman article? Yeah, so was it Tillman? It was a, it was a, a woman doctor who published. I, I just, I actually have it in my library. I can go, I can go get it. But it, it went, there was a lot of pushback and it was because she was interested in testing the social contagion theory. There's, there's a number of other diseases that they've, they've kind of the big leap in, let's say, obesity and a few other things was through looking yeah. at it as a social contagion. And so they were curious to look at the rapid onset as being potentially a mech that could be a mechanism explaining part of it or, yes. or not. But then the pushback politically is because people feel again, understandably that if this is what, who they are, that that is diminishing them. So I, I kind of understand the politics of it, but it's, it's definitely affecting people's ability to investigate as well. Yeah, and that's the problem is uh, disallowing the investigation. Yeah, there are the stories of detransitioners that are not being that are being disallowed or desisters, especially. You know, they say studies should only be for those who have persistent gender dysphoria. But what studies have included is anyone who's expressed gender dysphoria, and uh, and maybe they've simply just socially transitioned, and then they decided to not to go through, and they consider that as inadmissible. I don't know why it'd be called be considered inadmissible ultimately, because why would anyone want to go through that? And shouldn't that play into some factors of why people would pursue it? Because there are people who have detransitioned because of um, either uh, um, fear of homophobia, because they have same-sex attraction, but there's a group around them that's homophobic, but there's more valorization or applause for transitioning uh, among a certain age group. Yes, exactly. Acceptability simulation. Yes, it's more pure, pure acceptable. And uh, but these people who have detransitioned said that they felt they were fast tracked. And some of them would say, you know, it was partly my fault. I felt it was serious. I fast tracked it, and there was not a lot of pushback. And I understand why they didn't push back on me, but I wish they had. Uh, but then that kind of narrative, people say, well, then that it just increases the quote-unquote gatekeepers of the medical um, professionals that keep me from being able to pursue this medical transition. Um, so it is complicated. It's, yeah, it's, it's... But it's too bad that these people who desist and detransition are, are often not allowed to have a part of the narrative in understanding gender dysphoria. That's right. There is ostracization. And, oh, and so you were saying, Liz was saying that sometimes these people pursue transition because they feel uncomfortable in their, uh, within a certain gender stereotype or, um, or maybe just uncomfortable with sexuality in general. And so, uh, so their body was, in a sense, 
but then they pursue and then they end up growing facial hair and the deep in the voice. Uh, and then they realize this is not what I wanted. This has not resolved my issues or anxiety around sexuality. Uh, and so then they detransition. And what they have found is that now they're really maybe the fourth sex because they feel that they're not acceptable with it. They don't fit anywhere. The trans activists feel that they have, that they weren't true trans in a sense. And then, uh, and then, you know, they, they look different and they, and they don't feel like they fit anywhere. Uh, yeah. And it's very hard. And I have a lot of compassion on, you know, and I mean, people who suffer real gender dysphoria and should transition, I think is a, is a big question. Um, I'm not entirely against it. Um, I think that there's arguments, good arguments for it. Um, but I also want to put that there's, um, um, I, I think that what's happening now is that we haven't had enough. It's so new and that we're doing it and that we're going headlong into it without a lot of thought, um, just because of um, our sensitivity to people's trauma. And it's criminal, certain views are censored. And certain yeah. views are censored. And criminal. So we're not getting the whole picture. What is uh, it? Yeah, you're doing it 80%. But people are, and so that can be frustrating to people who are trying to research it, but how difficult it is for the person who's trying to self-understand it, and then they can't get the adequate facts on self-understanding. And then they go into a gender clinic, and, and they're maybe fast-tracked more than they should have been. And I feel a lot, uh, I feel a heartbreak for that. I told this one person um, who was wondering about transitioning, and I said, uh, and they were wondering if they should believe in God or not. And, uh, and at the end, I said, you know what? I don't know if you should transition or not. I think that's your decision, but I want you to know that whether you transition or not, Jesus still wants you, you know? Um, and you're still welcome. And so I think that that's something important to say to people who are in the cogs of this dilemma machine body politic yeah it's yeah, yeah. yeah the politics are being played upon the body what was uh well Blair has a question i just have a few things um oh a few things well i think you can like kind of solve the world's problems <laughs> in a sense like, i solve the world's problems well, in a sense like when you're seeing showing the biblical view yes and how now you see like uh undermining the society and society crumbling because the lack of that like god's union and the, the family bond has been taken out since the 1500s yes and, and so that's what needs to be spoken and you probably get censored for like sharing that kind of thing like, so i think you really hit that on the head it's like that's why you're seeing this all this stuff kind of happening because the God's that biblical view laid out is not really being uh, so shared. let me respond to that so Blair was saying you know he thinks that I solved the world's problems <laughs> and that uh, that we just need to have the idea that since the 1500s you know with this freedom over nature everything has fallen apart and that we need to return to family values or biblical values on sexuality uh, let me let me just temp, temper your enthusiasm for me, though I'm I'm really excited about any enthusiasm for me. Um, is that 
the Christian believes in the reality of sin. And because of that, the problems did not start in 1500. Um, and, and this is not the only problem. There is also misogyny. I was noting on that, but I wasn't really speaking too much about it, which can just be used as sometimes the nature over freedom argument has been might is right. Uh, what is, is male power over female weakness. And, uh, and that happened before the 1500s. So there has always been patterns that have not conformed to God's purposes. And as a result, there has always been certain things under attack. Now, the biological family has not always been under attack, but I would even look at how ancient, the Greco-Roman culture, I was saying it was hypersexualized, sexually trafficked, and yet the biological family stayed intact because they said this is the lifeblood of our society. Um, but what they did is that it was the freeborn male and the freeborn female, as long as they had superior freeborn children, and then everything else could be used sexually. Um, you can say, okay, well, there's a real distortion, even though they give place to the biological family. And so patterns of sexual sin has gone back all the way to Adam and Eve. Um, uh, to the very beginnings. Uh, and it seems that sexuality is one of these things that uh, is most often under attack. And it's interesting, like a little stat there, it says 25% of women on Tinder experience being like, traumatized or frightened by like, yeah. a casual. Yeah, 25%. And so that just kind of was a real eye opening stat. You know, oh, you think it's going to be so great. And then, well, now 25% of women are affected. So how does that, that trickles? down a lot yeah and what does that call what what was that yeah yeah that was just an interesting point and then one other thing just to touch on we talked about the body and the spirit or the body and the soul yeah but i thought there's your body then your soul and inside your soul is your spirit so i thought there's there's the soul and spirit is the same or is there three i've heard it described as three levels of watchman knee has come up with this three-part way of looking at the human but I would say it's not biblical. The biblical view of the body is um, that the soul and the body are interdependent realities. Now, you can see them as separate substance in terms of theoretical discussion, but in practical, they are inter so interdependent that you can't have them separate that they, they inform one another. Uh, it's not like the soul is trapped in the cage, um, as a Greek thought. Uh, and so the Bible would say there were a thousand souls, but we translate it in English as a thousand people. And so soul can refer to the whole person. Spirit and soul are pretty much the same, just as flesh and body are pretty much the same but sometimes they have different nuance, just as body and flesh sometimes have different nuance. But they're basically being applied to the same thing. Really, there is a body-soul. Uh, that, that's the two parts that make up the human being, biblically. I would say even probably the better way of describing the human body is the seen and the unseen. There's a seen reality and there's an unseen reality. And they inform each other, just like my mind. My mind and my brain are not the same thing. You know, often we think of that. 
you know, but it's not. So. I've just got a comment here about the uh, about saying that uh, uh, gender determination is all biological, and saying we don't know how that happens yet. And it's just another another example of you know the, of a science of the gaps argument. Yeah, we don't really understand how gender identification, like uh, philosophers have tried to figure out what gender identification is. My personal take, let me get, let me step into some hot water, even though I think it's so satisfactory that it shouldn't get me in trouble, is um, personally, I mean, it depends on who I'm talking to. I don't think that sex and gender are totally unrelated, but they're not one in the same thing. Uh, so one way of talking about sex is the biological sex, natal sex, um, and then gender is basically how are we perceived, uh, how are we perceived uh, internally and externally, like how, does, how do people perceive us. Now, uh, but I would say that gender is related to our biological sex in some degree. Um, Hmm. And so, so I express myself like I am oriented to the world with a male body and my male body responds and acts and engages the world in a certain way. And that shapes how I understand myself. And I know that, uh, um, including sexual, um, sexually, that informs my way of seeing things. Uh, what's that? Someone might say, well, you, you're on the privileged side or whatever. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, there, there might be other power dynamics at work because of that. But I'm just saying I'm oriented to reality in a certain way, just as Julia is oriented in a certain way. She can carry a baby, I can't. Or breastfeeding, being more uh, vulnerable, and then also not being as uh, generally, we're talking generally about strength. The women's endurance is better. Right, so uh, Sarah's saying if she identified as, if she were to identify as male, then she wouldn't desire to carry the baby. I'm not talking about desire. I'm just talking about physically, how I'm physically shaped. So even if I identify as male with a female body, I'm saying your female body informs, uh, gives you a form of knowledge that you could not have without that body. Um, and I would say that even works at the chromosomal level. It's not just um, having breasts and a vagina. Um, it's not just having a chest and a penis. It's, uh, there's more to that. I believe that informs our awareness of other bodies, how I relate to other bodies. And yes, the transgendered person would, um, a person who has gender dysphoria, if we more broad, um, person with gender dysphoria would, yeah, they would be oriented to the world in a different way. But you would have to say, where does that identification come from? Well, okay, well, let me ask this. So, um, so Sarah's like, well, for the person who would be like wearing a suit. Um, and I would say that's not just transgenderism uh, or even gender dysphoria. There can be an uncomfortability with one's own body and not yet think that that body, like one can feel betrayed by one's body all the time. And people do throughout their life, um, ultimately in death. Yeah, but they don't but, have a 
Right, but the fear of the fear of developing breast, this is just how I see it. I believe that the fear of developing breast does not necessarily mean that one identifies as male. It means that they 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 have a fear of their body um, or feel a betrayal of their body, but um, what does it mean to identify? Uh, that's, I think that's the question. It's okay. that, I mean, it's well, see, now, okay, so I, I followed you all the way up until that very last sentence. And so, um, uh, so Sarah was like, yeah, you can develop a fear of developing breasts at, before puberty and then at puberty and saying, I, I, I don't want this. And, uh, and you feel betrayed by the body when it does happen, when your body starts forming along a certain uh, chromosomal line. And I think that people do feel betrayed by their bodies. My point is that if a person, let's say that a person that is looking at their body, um, male or female, they look at their body and they don't want their body to develop in a certain way, doesn't necessitate that they identify as the opposite gender. What it means is that they feel uncomfortable with the body that they have. And even people who want transition don't even necessarily want to be the other. They just don't want what they are. I just don't want, I, I just wouldn't want to go so far to say is, well, they must be a woman trapped in a man's body if they feel that their body's betraying them in a masculine way. Okay, you're not saying that. I'm saying that comes out because it's like, and it's basically, it's like you just like, so yeah, Sarah is saying that you know people that we can have a fear or even a phobia of of how the the body will develop, especially if there's early trauma. Yeah, sure, for whatever reasons, but let's not discount environmental factors. But if if your body is developing, I agree with all that. I'm just saying that I just don't want to say that the person who feels betrayed by their body can say that they are the opposite gender or that they are, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is what is their sense of self-attached to? If someone feels very uncomfortable with their body and how it develops, yeah, I, I think that I'm not just talking about cisgendered people. I just want to be careful not to say that we can under we can take that internal sense of identity and lay claim to something as I guess what I'm saying as if it were biological necess necessarily. We're all trying to work it out. Thanks, yeah. Brett. Did you want to say something? Okay. No, you know, I think you said it very well indeed, actually. Okay. I'll talk to you about the Ethiopian unit later. Because <laughs> I know you a lot of know a lot about the Coptic Church. Yes, 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 yes. No, I, I I think it's been very very helpful, and I really appreciate your nuances and the uh, the possibility of a person having genuine gender dysphoria and so on. I mean, everything you've said has been fantastic. But I am really I feel there's so much in terms of my experience and the training that I've had in terms of people's inner disorders affecting their sexual expression and their sexuality and it, and I think people are really minimizing that and so by saying well you must express yourself in this way or that that they are actually not, uh, 
um, being negative towards that they're actually harming these people because they're not allowing you to work on these deeper issues, which I see as being a paramount. But, but, see. Yeah, so let me see if I understand you correctly. You're saying that um, people feeling pressured into maybe transitioning because they're, you want to encourage them to be able to express themselves, but perhaps if it's being fast-tracked, then they're not able to address deeper sorrows or root causes that need to be addressed, and that's where you absolutely, feel... Absolutely, and, and that seems to have just gone by the board, and that's so distressing because my experience and the people that I've been working with, the, the, the working on those inner issues are, are so healing and so helpful. Hmm. So... Uh, yeah, I've heard that about, I, I, I don't know personally, but I heard that about uh, Living Waters, uh, yeah. a ministry for um, uh, sexual restoration or something like that. Hostile Amen. care ministries, all those, all those ministries deal with deeper issues. And, and in some people, those deeper issues show up with, with specific, I would say, symptoms. So, you know, gender dysphoria same-sex attraction and so on, but there are deeper issues which they might have in common with other people, but how the symptoms show or how, how, how uh, demonstrate themselves depend on your personality, on your sensitivity to rejection, et cetera, et cetera. People have different personalities, and so there are different results, you see. So I see, for instance, a person with same-sex attraction and a person who is macho, kind of domineering females and so on, having similar root issues. Yeah, that's good, yeah. I mean, also the hypersexualized male, we need to yeah, yeah, deal exactly. with those causes as well. Yeah, you know, about Living Waters, I was actually quite nervous about how they would be affected by the criminalization of conversion therapy. But I've actually talked to people who've gone through Living Waters and, and they don't see that there's any, like, and even when I heard about the process that it, it couldn't even be considered conversion therapy because there's no. they're not seeking to convert someone one way or the other or to like straighten people out or to to assist people out or whatever. It's is to hear their narratives and to walk with them rather yeah. than uh, setting an agenda. Yeah, the people in government. I mean, as you may, I, you may, I mean, no, I forget what, what I say, but uh, to whom? But. But, but I have written to Elizabeth May to, and, uh, to ask her to kind of speak up at the hearings uh, about the law right now because it is so general. It, it's, it's like it's, it's well-meaning, but it's like a hammer, and, and it's going to smash all kinds of things. So, for instance, um, I had a parishioner who, was, uh, who had been sexually abused um, uh, in the mental hospital, actually, and um, uh, he then abused uh, members of his family, and he was really helped by the therapy he got in prison. So he isn't particularly Christian, but it was to lessen his attraction to children, to understand the, 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 the issues behind it. And that was really healing and, and for him. So, I mean, you know, you don't want to kind of eliminate that. I mean, I mean this is, you know, this was a helpful thing. And so I think the parliamentarians are being rushed into this uh, because it... There's a, there's a reaction to what's gone on in the in the past, and uh, I actually think I feel that there is a kind of a built-in reaction to some of the sexual aberrations or differences or or, or, or deviations 
kind of a natural reaction, but unfortunately we, we turn that natural reaction into, re into repugnancy. And so we react like, you know, calling people fags and all this kind of stuff. And, and then I think we have a reaction against that, seeing that that was so brutal and so homophobic, we then go the other extreme, you see. And, and it, is, it is fascinating, people's, if you just look at, quote, straight people or people who don't have those issues, how they go backwards and forwards and, and uh, react within themselves. And, and it, it's, it's all quite complicated, but I do, I, I do see some real trends there which uh, need to be addressed. We need to, anyway, yeah. Just to, just to clarify, Brett, you, you were referring to comorbidities, right? Comorbidities? Yeah, like when you have like a, a bunch of different things happening at once um, in terms oh. of like uh, different things happening in your life, some of the mental health all occurring at the same time. Yeah. 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 No, that's, I, from what I understand, it's getting difficult to, to look at that too now. Yeah. It, it's, it's very complex. I mean, I see it in my family and stuff, you know, I mean, there are different issues, you know, that they all kind of combine and, uh, but you need to kind of dissect each one. Um, my, my question though was I, I wanted to first vote for a part three as to what actions we all need to do and think about when we're educating our children or how we live our lives. It'd be great. Sorry to put you on the spot there. I don't mean to have that right away, but <laughs> the, the second one would be, I was wondering how paradox of choice fits in. So with freedom, you've kind of had unlimited choice now or, or that's being sold, but there's lots of studies that have shown the paradox of choice and how it actually has a, has a psychological toll on people having too many choices. And I'm, I'm wondering about that with the combination of, you know, there's always natural variation. And now we have this freedom to make up new categories where before you were just variation within a category. Now you're defining all these new categories and, and there's like a real almost trauma on having too much choice too. I think our society is have, has been deeply injured by and fragmented by creating all these new categories. And some of these categories are figments of imagination. I believe that freedom, uh, that we think of freedom in today as control. We mistaking the word control uh, for freedom. Where I think freedom is working or resonating with what is. So I always talk about an instrument, someone who's playing an instrument. That, you know, my child could just hit the piano, kick the piano, but they're not actually making music. They're not within the realm of what's the parameters of it. But if they become skilled at it, then they're, but, uh, they're are able to make variations within that structure. That I see is, is a true freedom, is, is trying to uh, work within the structure of the thing. And so there's going to be some flexibility like even thinking of uh, gender as a spectrum, I'm totally okay with that. I, I think it's actually very helpful, but I don't think that it is a total freedom without, I mean, when you start saying that maleness and femaleness is merely a construct, I think that it ends up doing damage, that we rejig reality in a way that is not, that actually does damage to the way things really are but we can still find freedom within that rather than fossilizing and saying, okay, a girl can't play with dump trucks and a boy can't play with uh, Barbie and Ken. I think when we start doing that, I mean, that's such a 
modern phenomena and how we fossilize certain gender stereotypes. I mean, I think of that like with marriage or, or a marriage that has no boundaries. You know, just saying, well, it's just open. I think that actually does more damage to the actual bond than the freedom that's developed among, among a, a faithful relationship. So I see freedom as something that needs to be constrained for it to be truly free.